I, I have an interesting story to share, if that's okay. Well, we've got the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hello, and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. And this week, we're talking with James Fair, a man who has 35 years of experience under his belt, working his way up from IT support to senior vice president at Executech. But what's probably most interesting is his work in Utah-based Feature Films for Families, a Mormon production company based in Salt Lake City, and his voiceover work. So that and much more. So let's get straight to it. Here is James Fair. Hi, I'm James Fair. And what do I do? I do a lot of things. Primarily, I am a senior vice president at an MSP here in the United States. That's probably my, my major role. That includes mostly teaching leaders how to be better leaders. I'm really about trust, empowerment, people first type leadership. That's really what I'm focused on and teaching that to others. I, I have a strong belief that if we can put the, the people first, that everything else will follow. Amen to that. That's a short version. Are we done then, Sam? You've just said amen. <laughs> amen to people first. Yeah. Amen to people first. You can keep going, James. But amen to the people <laughs> okay. first. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, you asked me about my background. Um, I've, I've been in IT for, I don't know, ever, basically, uh, some 35 years or so. Uh, I was, I mean, I don't want to bore you, but I was 13 years old. When I got my first computer. It was an Atari 800, which had a cassette tape. That's where you stored your data. And it was more like a, you know, speaking of amen, it was like a prayer, right? You'd hit record and, and hope <laughs> it got on there. You do it twice just in case, but half the time it wouldn't make it. It was a long process. I had 48K of RAM and I thought, man, how am I ever going to use this much memory? This is crazy. So yeah, I've been around a long time. I, uh, I, uh, my second computer was an IBM PC Junior uh, with DOS. So I dove into that. At, I don't know, I guess I was about 16 uh, I came out two years later or so, and I knew everything about the PC and DOS, and, and that kind of started my career. I thought I was going to be a vet, <laughs> but no, I'm uh, I'm hardcore tech, in case you couldn't tell. <laughs> so who who lured you, or what lured you into the uh, the dark side of the computer world? Then <laughs> parents, friends, curiosity. Yeah, curiosity. I actually. Uh, a friend of mine and I went to get an electronics degree. We decided that was going to be our next thing. We we're going to go do electronics. And it was an, an area I didn't really understand that well, so I wanted to learn about it. And in that during that school, it was ITT. I don't know if, you, if anybody knows that over there on your side of the, of the pond, but uh, here they got closed down. Actually, it's no longer a thing. But it was one of those tech schools, you know, those cram course tech schools. And about a, I guess about a year into it, we had this company come in and start asking questions like, all right, we're looking for a candidate um, who's interested in the stock market. And that was definitely something that I was interested in. So I put my hand up and who has some computer background. And anyway, by the time they got through asking all the questions, I was like the only dude left with my hand open or hair, hand still up. So like, all right, come apply. Interestingly, uh, side note, I was 20 minutes late to my interview and I still landed the job. I must've talked sweet talked my way out of that one, but, and that was my, my lead into tech. It was like, I had planned to do other things, but I had this childhood background of being in tech. I just needed a piece of paper that said I could, I could do it. I was going to say, this wasn't at 13 you were playing. Uh... No, no, this was much later. Yeah. This was uh, 18, I guess, when I got my first gig. Yeah. But like, how did you get your first Atari? Like what was... Uh, that was my parents. Yeah. Were you, were you clamoring for that? Was it like, I've got to have an Atari? Uh, yeah. A friend of mine had, had uh, his parents had bought him the Atari 400. He was my best friend. We go over there and I was just like, oh, this is amazing. 
And so I went back to my parents and pleaded and, and they were snobs. They upgraded me to the Atari 800, which was the upgraded model of that actual keyboard and, and you know, dual cartridge slots from the Atari, <laughs> that kind of thing. And then uh, my mom and I were at, I don't know what was around back then, something like an office depot. And I ran across a book that said, teach yourself the basic programming language. And I'm like, mom, mom, I'm going to have this book. And I did. I, she bought the book for me. I taught myself basic. I was hammering away at code um, at age 14, trying to convert that. I wanted to make games, of course. I think most kids do. And uh, I, I could not jump from basic to machine language programming. That was a little bit much of, <laughs> of a jump. But I had a couple routine, subroutines that do stuff like move a ship-looking thing around and were, were there many people around you that were that were also you know trying to use the Atari to do some basic programming? No, I was the only one I knew. Must have been a lonely time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the life of a nerd, right? So, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean, though. Like at that time, you know, you must have been. It, it's it's all done by magazines, I guess. You know, you're you're waiting for the next thing to come out so that you can go and try and type it in and program it. You know, this is. This is what I hear. I mean, it's a bit before my time, I guess, to a degree. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm old school, right? The stone tablets came out. No, uh, <laughs> the library was a resource sometimes. But yeah, magazines, what you know, like, oh, that looks interesting. I'll go pick that up and, and try that and plug away at that. And mostly just kind of like on my own, I tried to, oh, how can I do this? And I mean, how did you deal with like debugging at that time? It was tough, but I learned debugging early on. I learned to put in steps and, you know, print statements every other line until I figured out where it was getting stuck. Um, so I got really, I got really good at troubleshooting actually and, and debugging. In high school, they offered a basic programming language, but I skipped that, went right to, right to Pascal, which I don't know if anyone actually programs in Pascal anymore. That's an old school language. I think it might still be around because they do like an, a language report every year, don't they? I think it was definitely still in the list. It's like a top hundred or something, isn't it's it? It's still there, I think. I'm not sure how high up. I'm going to do a quick check. It's a GitHub repo, isn't it? That that shows that that list, isn't it? It might be. So you're going to you're going to you're going to find find the data there. Then I'm just going to yell out a number, and you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so we, did you get to Pascal as soon as you went over to that uh, that the DOS system for your your IBM uh, Junior? No, that was that was at school on the Apple II E's actually. All right, so move over to Apple Apple level programming then. Yep, Apple programming then. When I get, went to the electronics school, I learned uh, assembly. Actually, I decided to tackle. Oh, I'm going to write a hexadecimal, hexadecimal calculator. Yeah, I'm nerdy, dude. That's totally nerdy. I know, but um, <laughs> that was my my midterm project, and I had no idea what to get myself into. If you've ever programmed an assembly, it's like ten thousand lines to you know put to print something on the screen. It was crazy how much coding it took. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I did that, and uh, it was one of the one of those early tasks in computer science in my on my computer science course. I think it probably took about two weeks so that we could print Hello World or something stupid like that. Right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> eleven. 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 Nice. Apparently, it's gone up. Eleven May twenty twenty two. Delphi and Object Pascal. So I don't know what that means, but I've searched Pascal, and that's the only yeah, one that comes up. Delphi sounds familiar. Yeah. So it's coming up as 11th, Object Pascal. That's got to be an evolution of it to make it object-oriented, surely. That's my guess. So to get from the early 80s to where we are now, what's the journey? The, uh, the evolution. So I, my first, uh, second tech job, actually, was for a film company here in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, they were kind of a, I mean, not nearly as large, but a Hallmark competitor. They were making family-friendly movies. And that was my first tech job. And that was my first intro to how not to lead. 
<laughs> I mean, I, I hate to bash on my previous employer, but that guy, oh, it was like everything you learn about leadership, he was the opposite. Uh, he was overbearing and dictatorial. Uh, there was another guy and I started the same day and we were afraid to touch equipment. Like even if we knew what was wrong, you know, it was like, I remember one day the whole company went down. You were talking a couple hundred people were down. Phones are lighting up. He's nowhere around. I go in the server room and it's pretty evident from this, this big switch array, all the lights are stagnant, right? They're not, they're static. They're not changing. And that thing is always flashing like crazy. I'm like, Oh, I found the problem. I look at my buddy and he's like, I'm not touching it. And I'm like, this is, <laughs> we were afraid to touch equipment. Right. So I'm, I'm like, well, he's not here. I'm doing it anyway. So I unplugged it, plugged it back in and, and the whole place came up. But yeah, I, I have an interesting story to share if that's okay. Well, we've got the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, around Christmas time, he had decided he wanted a raise. And being this wonderful personality that he was, he went to the CIO at the time, I believe it was, and demanded a raise. Like, I, you you got to pay me more money. I, I am totally worth it. And they they declined. And he, and he was like, that's it. I'm going home for two weeks. I'm going to prove to you that you have to, you know, you need me. You're going to pay me or I'm not coming back. And for two weeks, he was gone. So for two weeks, my buddy and I, we scrambled like crazy. Like, here's an opportunity, right? So we worked, you know, 14-hour days, six-day weeks. My wife at the time actually thought I was having an affair because I was gone so much, <laughs> which I wasn't. That would have been a much nicer way to spend my time. But uh, <laughs> I was, you know, we were working around the clock trying to, and we got things fixed. We got all those problems fixed, got all these things working. And two weeks later, sure enough, he came back and he's like, all right, you know, you guys want me back now? You're going to pay? And the CIO said, hmm. No, actually, you can just stay gone. Wow. And boom, that was it. Yeah. So uh, that was my introduction to how not to lead. That's incredible. <laughs> Got lots of great lessons in that one. How I wasn't, I was going to do things differently when I learned to lead people. That was for sure. And so you said this was in, uh, in, in Salt Lake in Utah. Yes, sir. Is, is that where you grew up? Uh, I grew up all over. Dad was in the weather service and the Navy. Uh, but I spent most of my, like from 13 on, I've been in Salt Lake. Yeah. So with Salt Lake being, because um, I don't really know, I know, the only thing I know about Salt Lake City is obviously that it's a, you know, it's a, it's a functioning theocracy in the sense that, <laughs> in the sense it that it's, it's, it's Mormon. Does that have any effect on um, on technology? Because I, I don't, re- obviously we're in London, we've got no context to that. I'm just wondering what it's like to, to live there with technology as a, an industry you're focusing on. I, I would say it creates a lot more uh, honest people. We get a lot more people who are, I mean, it's a whole separate story, but unfortunately we're a little naive because of that. So there are things that go on in the under in the underworld. I did a, a, a Citizens Academy with the FBI here and learned a great deal about how kind of gullible we are. But in general, <laughs> uh, it's, it, <laughs> it's totally true. That would be the only impact as far as tech goes. I mean, I had you know, personal experience growing up in that. Um, but as far as the technical world goes, I don't see much difference, really. That's really interesting, though, because obviously you mentioned as you, you know, when you were doing the intro about being, uh, you know, in cybersecurity. And so does that sort of um, almost gullibility, does that have an effect with the cybersecurity side of things? Yes. Yeah, that it does. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a, there's a lesson learned here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I joined what's called the FBI Citizens Academy. You have to be nominated by somebody else and you go, and it's for eight weeks, I believe, or 10 weeks. You go once a week and three different department heads at the FBI do presentations on what their department does. And the very first presenter, or the very first day I was there was about prostitution. 
and how they get, how they draw women in, how they keep them. And it was just awful. It was so horrible. I almost never went back again. I'm squirming in my chair the whole time going, ah, I don't want to know this stuff. You know, I'm going to go back to being ignorant, please. You know, <laughs> and, and they were very, illustrating very clearly how Salt Lake City in Utah is part of a corridor. We have a large freeway that comes down from the South uh, into Southern America, South America and other parts up through here. And because of the theocracy, as you mentioned, we tend to be very blind to it. We don't know that's going on. There was a huge uh, rock concert held out in one of our locations here, and they didn't know it was put on by a, a bunch of cartel members, right? These kind of things went on. Yeah. Just, it just So as far as cybersecurity, anyway, back to cybersecurity, your question originally. <laughs> yeah, there's gullibility here. There's Oh, that doesn't happen to me. You know, we're kind of immune to that. We're too small. Why would anyone want to attack us? And and that kind of a mentality I see quite a bit here. And, and I'm sure that's prevalent everywhere, but I see it pretty pretty widely, pretty wide here. Yeah. Well, you talked about that first. Um, was it the second job you were talking about where um, the you were unceremoniously not invited back? The leader was, yeah. Yeah. The, well, so where where did you go from from that point? So uh, about six months, and I had a feeling it was coming. Once the leader was gone, it was just the two of us running the show. And I consider myself fairly good at predicting the future, at seeing what's coming. And I had a feeling it could not last forever, just the two of us running the show. So I made sure that I was point man on everything. I was all over everything. Every time there was an after hours call, I was the first one to jump on it. And about six months later, the CIO came to me and they said, hey, we want to offer you the position of running this department. And just know that if you don't accept, we're going to go offer your buddy that. And I'm like, well, I guess I have to accept then. <laughs> so that was my my first uh, my first leadership job. I was a IT manager there for a while, and so I've I have fulfilled just about every position from you know entry level tech all the way up to senior VP. I, I worked my way up through all those, and I didn't step into anything. So I was IT manager, uh, and they kept throwing other things at me. Here's some telecom. Here's cybersecurity. Here's database administration. Uh, storage, and I just kept all these things thrown at me. And then eventually that that company started to kind of decline. Uh, they didn't do so well. They had some run-ins with, <laughs> anyway, we'll get into that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then it was time to go elsewhere. Now I'd been an IT director for a long time. And so I thought, all right, or excuse me, I've been an IT manager for a long time. And I thought, aha, director is my, is my next iteration, right? That's my next rung up the ladder. So I want to be a director. And I focused so keenly on finding a director level job that I forgot to pay attention to the company. And I ended up at a place that was, again, kind of a miserable, that, that place was fantastic. It was just the leader. It was bad. I want to be clear on that. But then I worked for a place that was, just did not care about people whatsoever. I ended up in a very miserable job, kind of a thing where on Wednesday night, you had to wait till after hours to run your report so you could create a PowerPoint presentation to show the leadership team the next day. And their job was to beat you up and, and tell you where you were doing things wrong. It was just a really great experience. Um, again, <laughs> taught me a lot. No one had been in the job longer than 12 months. And I was like, I'll show them. I lasted 16 months. So I did I did beat the record. Oh, yeah, beat them. Yeah. <laughs> but then I learned that, okay, maybe it's not all about the title. Maybe it's about the place. So I found uh, the company I'm working for currently, Executech. It had been ranked one of the a couple times the best places to work in Utah. And I thought, that's where I want to go. I want to go someplace where they actually genuinely care about people. 
and I finally found one. And that I started back as a tech again. I'm, uh, there were no management positions available. So I said, look, just put me in as a tech. I'll prove myself. I did. I made team lead in six months. I made VP in a year and a half, uh, senior VP some six and a half years later. And I'm still there. So oh, that's interesting then. So there's mostly just sort of three major steps in your career then. Technically, yeah. So, that, so that first one that you were at then, that feature films for, is it feature films for families? Am I right with that one? Yeah, I don't know how you caught that. I was like, wow, did I say that? I don't think I said that. You're oh, good. Okay. Yes, uh, <laughs> LinkedIn's open. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, all right. I may also have other notes to, have to my hand. Uh, <laughs> um, just magic, you see. Um, but you said that's a, like a competitor to, to Hallmark then. So, I mean, how long were you there? Uh, 20 years I was there. I was wow, there a long wow. time. I thought I was going to be a lifer there. Yeah. It, it was a neat to work for a place that removed, you know, I, I realize different countries have different tastes for those, but removed any graphic violence, any nudity, uh, sexuality was removed from any movies and they were uh, shipped out to customers who would purchase these. And it felt good to work for a place that created, you know, rated G movies for kids and it had lots of morals in them. In fact, at the back of each movie, there'd be four questions you could you could talk to your kids about, right? Start spark conversations about these things. Because my buddy was working for a game company who who made Mortal Kombat, so we'd compare notes. Like, what do you do for a living? Oh, I I create Mortal <laughs> Kombat game. <laughs> you do? I create rated G movies, right? So I felt better about what I was doing. It seemed like opposite extremes, those. I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, interestingly, there, I I ended up going down a path of doing some voiceover work uh, unintentionally. I did, yeah. So I, one day the phone system just had a meltdown and all the recordings for the interactive voice response system were gone. And the voice actor they normally hired, he was on vacation. So I'm like, well, I got to do something. So I just recorded some. And the next day the CEO called me up. He's like, that's it. From now on, you're the voice of feature films. <laughs> and I, re- I did all the voice recordings. I was, uh, when they would switch DVDs, they invited me to go into studios and I would read those, uh, those four questions I mentioned. Uh, so I started down this voiceover path as well and became kind of a speaker, which was like, you know, I was an introvert. I was an IT guy and a total introvert, right? So it was utterly terrifying for quite some time. It actually still is, but I love doing this stuff now. I just, I still get a little nervous about it, but. So, so how, how many voiceover roles has this led to then? <laughs> uh, I did a bunch of work for some charities. So the uh, American Diabetes Association would come every year and I would do their voiceover announcements uh, for the whole place. It led to being a lot more comfortable during meetings, certainly leading meetings as a manager and then leading trainings. Uh, as Executech grew, I do, would do a lot of the trainings for the groups and it'd be 100, 110 people at times. There's a big difference between recording in a booth or similar for recording like IVR um, voiceovers for telephones versus doing a presentation in front of a hundred or a couple of hundred people. Like how did you get from, from the... Uh, I'm just sitting in front of a microphone and preparing and potentially reading this several times to I have now got one shot to do this in front of a few hundred people who I probably feel are judging me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably were. That's a good call. Um, not without a great deal of sweat, that's for sure. To, to this day, I am still nervous to speak. I get, I, sometimes I don't sleep the night before, but I love doing it. And so I do it anyway. And really it was a process of kind of wearing down my fears. Now it started out with one one big event. I was at a, a work event at Future Films and I hadn't been the IT manager very long. We were, they had a company get together and there were a bunch of speakers. And suddenly they called on me and said, hey, will you come up and speak about this, this tech change we're doing? And I had never really spoken in front of a group like that, not cold, certainly. I, you know, 
with lots and lots of preparation was how I usually would deal with it. I prepare so much that it was wrote in my mind. So when I freaked and blanked, I could still keep going. And this time it was like cold. I got up there in front of them and they asked me this question and I froze. I remember just utterly freezing. You know, you, you hear about, I was so scared I couldn't move or couldn't talk. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. No, it's really true. I experienced it personally. And I remember freezing and just looking out at all these people staring at me and I'm just trying to get it out and it won't go. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I've got really two choices I can, I can take here. I either got to say something, I got to push through this, this barrier I've got walled up right now, or I got to be embarrassed and walk back and sit to my seat. They're all going to wonder, you know, why is this guy in charge? And so I did somehow I managed to push through that fear that, that, that like, it felt like a barrier it really did it felt like a wall inside myself. And I spoke and once I got going, I was funny. I had people to laugh, but that was the first real big breakthrough for me. And at that point it became easier. Obviously within the tech world, I think there's a lot of introverts. Um, there's a lot of people who, uh, who don't like to get up and speak or be the center of attention. Are there any lessons there that you can share with our listeners who may be in a similar boat of wanting to broaden their profile or uh, do that thing of speaking at conferences or whatever, but just can't get over the stage fright? Yeah, I call it pushing on your fears. I, I believe you know our fears are like a wall. I've got two great fears. It's like public speaking was number one, and I've clearly pushed through that one, and heights is the other one. And the only way through these, they're not going to go away on their own. They're not going to disappear if you just leave them there. So the only way is to work at them. You got to chip away at this wall over and over and over and over, you know, dozens of times, hundreds of times, whatever it takes. Sometimes you can do things like that event where I had, where I I knocked it down a pretty good segment of that wall. Sometimes you're just chipping away at at tiny pieces of it. But the point is you got to keep pushing on that, on that fear because it's never going to go away on its own. I tell a story where my son, we went to this there's an event center here and we took the kids. It was a kid's thing, but I look up and there's this climbing gym at the top and it's, I don't know, it felt like 3000 feet in the air. I'm sure it was only like 60 <laughs> feet up, but, and my, my son and his family, they love to climb. So they looked at me and go, are you coming dad? And I was like, you know, I went, hell no, there's no way, there's no way I'm going up there was my first response. And then I thought, you know, here's an opportunity to push on that fear. So I go, uh, yes. <laughs> and I buckled in and I went up there and it was utterly terrifying. I can't even describe to you how I was just covered in sweat, just shaking. And it, you're completely safe. You were actually attached to the top uh, to this kind of a cable system, but it, it was simulated, you know, that you could fall. Like the very first thing was kind of this tightrope walk. And it was utterly terrifying for me, but I did it anyway. I kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. Eventually I, I got to the point where like, I can't do this anymore. And I had, I had to turn around and embarrassingly go back down to the beginning. And then they unhooked me and I'm pretty sure I fell over and curled up into the fetal position for a while. But that day I pushed on that fear, right? It's a little bit smaller. And that's how I would recommend getting through this is you just, you can't, you, you can't let it go. It's not going to get better on its own. You can't convince your way through this. You just have to do it and start small, but just do something, anything and keep pushing at it, keep pushing at it, keep pushing at it. Eventually, that wall becomes surmountable. You can get through it. You, you know you're going to be somewhat scared, but you're going to get through it, and it's going to be fun when you get done with it. And then you discover things like I did. Like, I love public speaking. It's still scary for me, but I love doing it. Well, I'm getting the impression from what you've said, though, that you're more scared of heights. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I worked more on the public speaking than I have the heights one for sure. So I got more to go on the on the heights one. I've done some repelling and all sorts of ter- terrifying to me terrifying things. Uh, but yeah, definitely still need work in that department. 
when you were saying about um getting up on the on the tightrope or, or whatever it's uh i was thinking there's nothing like trying to trying to not let kids show you up to get over your fear <laughs> to, of, to motivate <laughs> you yeah so uh, my nephew had a birthday party and it had all those creepy crawlies and stuff giant snails and whatever and tarantulas and i was like all these kids holding these tarantulas and they were like oh having fun and smiling and i was like i'm gonna show these kids so i held that tarantula and it was the proudest moment of my life and uh yeah but that but that you've got to keep doing it though you know to be more practical about it you've got to keep doing it because i didn't I haven't held a, such a big spider since and i don't think i could do it you know again but you've got to look for an opportunity to try it and you know you've got to work at it it's not something that's just gonna you know one and done sort of thing so that would be my input into trying to get over a fear use use kids to to show up and, and then keep, keep going at it <laughs> grandkids is a great motivator I'm telling you yeah, my kids are doing it. Grant, this this twelve year old's doing it. Why can't I do it? Exactly. Well, these are more like five. Even better. You're always talking about Webflow. So, <laughs> what is Webflow? Well, Webflow is a platform completely online, completely in the browser that allows you to build websites using no code, zero code. I mean, it, it has the potential to build low code websites. That's low code, but there's real power is in the no-code way of building websites. I don't know, it's fantastic. A lot of designers, I would say, have actually built their careers off of Webflow, which is really powerful, really, because a lot of them didn't weren't able to offer this kind of service. So designers are picking up Webflow and building their whole careers, being able to design a website and then being able to actually implement it and earn a great living off of building Webflow websites. So you want to start up a, a new company or um, bought your domain name through namecheap.com, <laughs> affiliate link down below in the description, then you can link that to a Webflow web website and um, start designing, start building a website with absolutely no code. And they do also have a templating library as well. So you can go out and buy a template to get started. And my first Webflow website was built, I kid you not, four hours. So if you want to uh, code along with Sam, then you can click the affiliate link that we have in our description for this episode, wherever you're listening to it. Or you can head over to thattech.show and take a look at the affiliate links there and click through to Webflow. And by doing that, you're going to be giving something back to that tech show because we get a little bit of kickback when you click that button. There you go. No excuses. You mentioned many hats, and I'd like to—I'd like to find a bit more information about the the many hats. Thing. The other hats, the other hats that you, <laughs> sure. uh, that you have to wear as the uh, VP, uh, Executech. What gets your gears going in the morning? What other hats you wear that really gets you excited? I love teaching leaders how to be better leaders. That is my passion. I have a belief. I kind of had this breakthrough visualization one day at an event I was at, where I saw that if I could teach other leaders to be better leaders, then their teams would be a little bit happier. And those people would go home to their families a little happier. And there's this ripple effect that goes out. So I really believe that, that teaching people to be better leaders, to be people-focused leaders, if you can make people feel trusted, like, like you've got their back, like you're not micromanaging them, they're far more likely to, to step outside their comfort zone. They're going to take, you know, not crazy, but they're going to, they're going to take risks. We, we, we've heard about this where the, the five-star hotels train their employees to be like this. And that's kind of what, what I want to apply to leadership. Let's make sure that we are 
embodying that people first experience whenever possible. Make it about the people and everything else will come from there. You know, people will be loyal. People will jump through hoops. People are willing to, to work late and work hard. If you, if they know someone has their back, someone trusts them, someone has their back. I'll share a quick story. Early on in my career here, I, I had a client who was really difficult. I kept sending people there and they'd call me up and they were angry that it wasn't, things weren't solved. And a new guy started and I kind of saw the way he worked and everything he tackled got done. So I went to him and I said, look, I got this client. I want you to go there and just take care of everything. Whatever it is they want done, go there and do it all. I, I believe you are the guy to solve this problem. I've sent three or four other people there. They have not done well. I think you're the guy. And he did. He went there. He was very successful. The client called me up happy. I was like, finally happened. But the really cool story is that later on, he sent me an email. He said, you know, I wanted you to know that early on in my career, I didn't have faith in myself. I didn't know if I belonged here. I didn't know if I was the right guy for the job. And when you put that trust and faith in me that I could step up and do that, I rose to the occasion. You know, I became better because you trusted me. That's what I want to teach people to do. That's great. This is a bit of a loaded question because I think you're going to have a very poetic answer to it. But I love it. <laughs> what what is a leader? Define a leader. Oh, so I'm going to give you a story instead. I'll define it with a story. I like stories, in case you couldn't tell. <laughs> we like stories on this show. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> we'll get along well then. Um, it, it's a fictional story, but I remember reading this sci-fi series as a kid, and it really struck home for me. This is what leadership was all about. So this was a, and this may be familiar to some of your listeners uh, or some moviegoers. It's been a movie now. There was a a Navy squad leader and he was still young, but his team was doing an exercise and they failed miserably at the exercise. So they got latrine duty, right? They got to go clean the latrine with a toothbrush. It's like, here's your toothbrush, get on your hands and knees, go clean the, go clean the bathrooms. And he got wind of this. So he went to see them. He was in his, you know, his dress whites or whatever. And he got there and sure enough, he saw his squad in there cleaning the latrines with their toothbrushes. So he posted a guard at each end of the hallway, took off his uniform and got down there and started scrubbing the floors with them. And when the brass came along, the, 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 the scouts at each end set up an alert, you know, set up a warning, yelled, hey, here they come. So he jumped up, put his uniform back on, started yelling at them. I can't believe you guys did this. You got to get the no, no, no. The brass came by and smiled because he was because he was doing his job. And they moved on. He took his uniform back off and dove in there and started scrubbing with them again. That to me is probably the epitome of leadership. So I, I'm I'm curious. You, we, earlier on in, in in the show, we talked about your first experience of a bad manager. When was your first experience of a good manager, and what was it that really sort of inspired you to focus on good leadership? Uh, here, I say, when I came to Executech, the founder of the company w- led the way I believed people should lead. I had, the, you know, I built up this list of what you shouldn't do. I read books. But what I took from the books, regardless of the type of book, was how the leaders treated people. Whether it was a movie or a TV series or a book, I I was always taking what the leaders were doing and creating kind of a database in my own head of how I wanted to lead people and learning from some of the greats, of course, in history. And he led that way. He led in a very trusting, like my very first client, he dropped me off, said, all right, here's your client. We met the client. I got a list of stuff they wanted me to work on, some long-term pain points. And he and I walked out afterward and he's, and I'm like, okay, do you want to report when I get done with some of the stuff today? And he's like, no. And I was, and I came from a place where I was micromanaged to death. Right. So I'm like, uh, oh, like a weekly progress report then he goes, no. And I'm like, well, do you want any kind of report at all? And he said, 
not really. Unless the client gets angry, then let me know. So right from the get-go, and it was true. Like I just get, was left alone to take care of this client. As long as the client was happy and I was happy, I was left to do my job. And it was so refreshing not to have someone breathing down my neck. And I'm like, this is the way you should lead people, you know, as an example. So yeah, the, the founder of Executech, he was, in my, in my eyes, that kind of a leader. It sounds like you, you've learned a lot, obviously, from experience, as we all do. I mean, how are you developing yourself? It's still a passion of mine. So I'm listening to podcasts, I, Brene Brown's work. I'm a huge proponent of Brene Brown. She's got uh, Dare to Lead. It's an amazing book. I recommend it to every leader out there. Please read Dare to Lead. And, and I am practicing it where possible. I, it's, I believe leadership is also about being willing to have those tough conversations. Brene Brown has, has mentioned that one of the, the biggest downfalls she saw to most organizations was their inability to have open and honest conversations in the group. So that's something I want to teach. I want to practice. I want to make sure that everyone's up to speed on that. Yeah, podcasts, books. Uh, Brene Brown's got an HBO series I've been watching. It's very uh, emotion-based, being uh, emotionally um, emotionally intelligent. There we go. Uh, still reading books, still reading, you know, watching TV that I, I take these things from. But yeah, when all possible, I am learning, absorbing it everywhere I can. With With leadership, I feel like charisma, for lack of a better word, plays a, a vital role in in being able to inspire people and and have them, you know, again, a, a silly example, work crazy hours. I mean, that's that's a, in this day and age, that's not necessarily a, a, a key sign of, of success, obviously. Some might say that leadership can't be taught and that charisma and, and that way to, to, to sort of inspire people can only come naturally because I think people it might feel like they can't lead and that it is a natural skill or, or whatever. Do you have anything to be said about that? To me, leaders aren't born, they are made. So I believe the opposite is absolutely true. Sure, some people come with natural abilities based on their environment, when how they were raised, or if, they're, you know, if one of their parents was a natural born leader. There are natural abilities in people, but you know, just like genius, unless it's put into action, it, it serves no value and it, and it has no experience behind it. So I absolutely believe people can learn to lead. If it's a passion, if they're truly focused on not themselves, but leading and creating a team, making other people better, then you're already in the right seat. You're already on the right path. And what are you going to do about that? How are you going to make that happen? Are you going to study books? Are you going to read things? Are you going to make sure you're trying things? Yeah, absolutely, you can learn to be a great leader. And charisma, as you mentioned, comes from public speaking. If you've got a fear of public speaking, then maybe it's time to start pushing on that fear, Right, start grinding that wall, trying to knock that thing down, because it's going to be important that you be able to get up and speak and articulate and be passionate and gesticulate if you must uh, in front of a group of people in order to inspire them. Vision's a big deal. Everybody talks about visions and leadership, so yeah, I need to be able to look in the future, see what's coming, give people an idea of what that might look like, so they go, "Ooh, I want to be part of that," and move toward that. But charisma is not. Eh. To some degree, there are certainly natural talents in that, but I think they're always subsets. There's no one who comes to the table with, I'm already born a leader. No way. You got to learn this stuff. And, and so can we draw a distinction here as well between leadership and management? I mean, where do you think the line is there? Yeah, I, it, the line blurs for me quite a bit. I, you know, We see these quotes that say, manager versus leader, where a manager is pushing from behind and a leader is you know, leading from the front. But there are obviously positions of management where that's your job, but you're not given kind of that full all the way authority of the group. 
So instead, your supervising is more like it. So I would say the difference is, are you a supervisor where your job is to make sure people are hitting their KPIs or showing up to work on time? Are you juggling your schedule versus a leader whose job it is? And again, they can, they can intersect for sure whose job it is to empower those people, to teach, to help those people be the best versions of themselves at work and maybe at home too. And so when you're talking about the leadership, do you ever, um, I mean, how much do you go into the challenges you face at different levels in an organization? Because obviously you're a SVP at uh, Executech. So how do you then deal with the complexities of leading leaders? Because, you know, it will be much more tiered within your own organization. I'm sure that's something you're teaching as well. Yeah, you know, the team leads, the first level of management of any kind here at Executech, they're dealing with a whole, like you said, a whole different challenge than the directors who are over a series of teams. So their challenges are different. Now, fortunately for me, I've been in all of those roles, so I can speak to all of them. In fact, I'm going to tell you a story again, and you can cut this out later if you want, but <laughs> I interviewed a guy and he was, there's a, a documentary on it. He was a brand new officer out of ROTC, and he was put in charge of the most elite squad in Iraq. And, I, and he came to interview us for a job, and I, I got to interview him. And I, he told me this, and I'm like, wow, did they listen to you at all? I mean, like, how did you, you know, how did you work with these people? They're people like, what do you want, newbie? Get out of here. And, and he said, actually, I figured out how. And I'm like, dude, you got to tell me. This is amazing. <laughs> and he said, I spent at least 10 days with every single person learning to do their job until I could do it like they could do it. And then I felt confident in being able to lead them. And I love that answer. I'm like, yes, finally, someone who gets it. You get down the trenches with them, know what it's like. Because otherwise, people look at you like, man, you don't know what you're talking about until you've been in their shoes. Mm. The small little segue to the question I had, which was around actual technical ability in leadership. So it's obvious, like from being led by someone, they garner a lot more respect from me if I know that they have had experience or know what they're talking about. Do you put a lot of emphasis or do you encourage leaders to be able to actually walk the walk as well as talk the talk? Or do you think leaders can exist with no technical knowledge, whatever the subject matter might be? I believe it is possible to, for a non-tech to lead techs. It will be a challenge. There is no doubt. As you said, if I'm a tech and some non-tech comes to me and says, this is how you should do your job better, I'm going to be like, yeah, you actually ever done my job, right? So you've got an immediate hurdle to have to, have to overcome right on, on there. So again, where possible, go learn their job. To whatever degree you can understand it, go do their job. Go shadow with them. Go see what it's like. So maybe you, you don't know how to correct the, the raid set issue, but you have some idea of what it's like to be in their shoes. Who calls them? What are they calling about? What are they doing? So you can at least speak to that. And the, great, the greater the separation between what you know and what they do, I think the more important it is to get in there in the trenches and understand that. So yeah, it's possible. But if you really want to garner their respect, you're going to have to get down there with them sometime and see what it's like. Mm. So have you had that then? You've, you, have you had people come in and you've, they got their eye on an industry or they've got their eye on a, a, a whatever and they, they want to lead in that scenario and you've had to ask them to get down and dirty? Or are you hypothetically speaking, if someone was to come in and have no technical knowledge, you would advise them to get down and dirty? Uh, a little of both. I, I haven't had a whole lot of positive experiences of people who are willing to do that if I provided them that feedback. But it is something I absolutely would encourage to, for anyone non-technical leading in a technical environment. 
And, you know, conversely, the folks who are down and dirty, as you call it, probably don't know what it's like to lead. So what if you brought them into your world for a while, give them a taste of them, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe these headaches you guys do. What do you do? How do you deal with this, right? So let's give each other a taste for that. It's super important that we understand and have, it creates a lot of empathy if we can show each other what our pains are, what we're dealing with. And people tend to change what they're doing. If I take a tech guy, an actual, or gal, put them in the accounting group for a little while, they're going to see how painful it is to do billing at the end of the month. They're going to be like, wow, I'm going to make sure I provide you more clear billing in the future. I'm sorry for any pain I've caused you. You know, So it's really important we get to know each, other, each other's roles. Absolutely. I think a certain amount of this, you know, what we're talking about comes down to trust, right? You know, that's the main thing you're trying to build within your team to, in order to be able to, to lead them. Are there any other sort of um, characteristics or particular, because we talked a lot about competencies, but are there any other sort of characteristics or styles or uh, personality traits that, uh, that you think are, are required, any of the required elements to sort of help build that trust to, to create that foundation for leadership? Yeah, I mentioned it before, letting people know that you have their back. If someone makes a mistake and you come in and you go, man, I cannot believe you did that. I got to write you up. We're going to have a discussion about it versus someone messes up and you come in and say, wow, man, I, I did that too when I was in your shoes. Or I could totally see that that's a thing. I got your back. We're going to figure this out. Not a problem. It's a very different reaction from that person. One is going to be like, oh, they're going to come, they come again. I got to go get in the office and get beat up versus one is creating loyalty. This person, they actually care about me as a person. They're watching out for me. They're going to help me with this. And now I feel more comfortable doing things that may be a little outside of my comfort zone that I wouldn't before if I'm worried about my job and getting yelled at again. Mm. I'm going to I'm going to make up a phrase just because I thought of it on the spot. Um, I'm going to throw a banana in the in the ring. Basically, I'm going to add to that. Was that the phrase? Throw a banana in. Yeah. Right. There yeah. we go. Throw the banana in the ring. Basically, communication. So I, I quoted this just the other day because I'm reading a book. And the quote is, a leader's job is to provide clear direction and get out the way. And that that touched me because I was like, you know what? Like that, I think that's really good is allowing people to do their work. But to to allow them to do their work is to communicate effectively. And basically would like your response on the banana, but also just to touch on how do you teach communication? How, do, and how, how much emphasis do you give that on, on leaders? I, I believe communication is one of the critical traits you must embody. Clear is kind. As Brene Brown says, being super clear to people, uh, to your employees, here's your tasks, here's what success looks like for you, and now go. Now they've got, all right, I've got some targets I can move toward. And then they can ask if I can, can I branch beyond that? but at least initially have a very clear indication of where they need to head and, and the future. What's the future look like for me? Here's a path to get there if you want to take this path. Here's an alternative path if you're not in, interested in management, for instance. But provide as much clear vision as possible. And communication is, it's a tough skill to teach. I find that one one of my more difficult ones. I, I can teach tech all day long. It's tough to teach introverts to be able to speak you know, in a room full of C-level folks, for instance. Uh, it can be taught with practice, absolutely, but it does require a great deal of pushing on that fear, unfortunately. So I would say, number one, practice it. Number two, realize that we are all storytellers. We, we came from cavemen who sat around a fire telling stories. We all want to hear each other's stories. It's what we're all about. So feel free to communicate. And 
maybe you fumble it up at first, but you get better through practice. You're never going to get better if you're just sitting there quiet. So talk to people. It's really important. To to be vulnerable for for a moment, I think I genuinely struggle with communication. I mean, that, I think that's why that quote just to just to finish it was it was from Paul Jarvis. I'm reading a book called Company of One, and I struggle with communication. I feel like you know there are often times I'm I'm frustrated because someone's done something incorrectly, and truth be told, it's probably because of poor communication from my front. And I and if my butchering of stories and questions is not evidence of that, then I don't know what is <laughs> from this very episode. But communication is something I, I really struggle with, and I think. I could blame it on dyslexia. I could blame it on the way that my mind works slightly differently, but I'm very much com- confused. If someone phrases something slightly differently, it just might, I just get a brain fart and, it, and, it, and it's, I struggle with that. So I'm certainly working on my, my communication and it's something I'm, I'm definitely um, looking to, to try and improve. And the only way I can think of doing that other than practicing is actually just getting feedback and, and maybe, you know, once you've given that direction, demonstrated that leadership or whatever, getting that feedback and saying, is everything clear to you? Is there something that's not quite, and, and getting that person to play back what it is that they understand. I mean, maybe that's my learning or maybe it's just good practice. I don't know, but yeah, that's my uh, sticking point at the moment with communication. I like it. Yeah. Active listening, we'll call it, where I'm going to say something and it feels cumbersome at first, but if you can get to the habit of, you know, what did you hear me say and, and hear, hear it back from them, then you get an idea very quickly of how where you're communicating with them. And, you know, to some degree, the listener. But again, that's not on them if you're not communicating it properly, even if they have some challenges. That means you've got to figure out how to get around those challenges. Mm-hmm. That's what active listening means. I thought it was, I thought active listening was leaning forward and nodding like, I genuinely thought that's what active listening was to just demonstrate that you're listening. But no, that's oh, okay. There we go. I learned many things today. So uh, thanks for that, James. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the banana in the, in the ring. I'm going to use that from now on too. So <laughs> please don't. I think we're going to have to make that a thing so that Sam now has a catchphrase. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think on that note, I mean, are, are there any, uh, are there any final takeaways? I mean, you've given us some pretty nice ones there, James, but are there any, some, any sort of final key things that we should be taking away on leadership other than uh, the, you know, the building of the trust and, um, and the like there? To me, it's a calling. So if you feel that calling, I, I say go for it. It can be scary and intimidating and 17 miles outside your comfort zone. But if you feel that calling of leadership, please, the world needs more people-focused leaders now more than ever. You know, there are too many people leaving their jobs in droves because they don't feel like someone has their back. So now is the time for those kind of leaders to rise. And so get out there, practice, you know, be willing to stretch yourself, take some chances, care more about the other person than you do about your own image. That's going to be a huge improver right there. If you can care more about, you know, that's the tough conversation piece. If I'm willing to have a tough conversation with you, you may not like me afterward, but I was willing to have that conversation with you because I care more about you than I care about what you think about me. On that note, thank you for joining us. It's been my sincere pleasure, gentlemen. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. No, it's been it's been great talking to you. It's a good conversation. Thanks, James. So that was a great talk with James. Really interesting the uh, the the stuff that he was doing with the film company. I thought that was fascinating. I totally wasn't expecting it. I didn't even know that was a thing. Me neither. 
Next time, we'll be talking to Harry Brundage, founder of a pretty cool development platform called Gadget that aims to put the speed back into development, helping you build more and code less. He'll be talking to us about that and his experience as director of engineering for Shopify. That's a cool conversation, so look out for that one. Anyway, we want to thank you sincerely for supporting the show, and we really couldn't do this without you. So please, once again, subscribe, give us a follow, and maybe head over to buy me a coffee and, well, buy us a coffee. Check out the website for the other 66 episodes, including Uncle Bob, Blake Lemoyne, the grandfather of microservices, Fred George, and the inventor of the BBC iPlayer, Ben Lavender. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcasting app you have and take us with you wherever you go in your earphones. And why not give us a five-star review on those podcast apps? Follow us on social media and retweet, repost, like, comment, and whatever else you can do to help us get our content to others who might like it. Anyway, that's enough. See you next time. See you next time. Goodbye.